0: I'm San Francisco Chronicle columnist Heather Knight, and you're listening to Fifth in Mission. State Senator Scott Weiner has a surprisingly strong challenge in his race for re-election. His opponent is Jackie Fielder, a 25-year-old Democratic socialist who has big ideas about combating California's deadly wildfires, tackling its housing and homelessness problems, and ensuring more women hold seats in the state legislature. Jackie Fielder, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So you're new to some of the listeners of Fifth Admission, so I wondered if you could um, start by sharing a brief biography of yourself and why you want to represent San Francisco in the state senate.
1: Absolutely. So my name is Jackie Fielder. I uh, am an organizer. I'm a lecturer at San Francisco State in the College of Ethnic Studies, where I've been teaching race, women, and class. Uh, You know, I announced my campaign last November, but a lot of this starts for me a few years ago. Uh, It was about December of 2016 when I left my home state of California, um, where I was born and raised and where both my parents still live, and traveled to join my Lakota relatives at Standing Rock to protest the Dakota Access Pipeline. Um, Basically, I became an organizer here in San Francisco to make sure that our city finances were not invested in oil pipelines, private prisons, weapons manufacturing uh, by way of Wall Street banks. And so since then, I've been fighting for a system of public banking that is local, but also at the state level. And, um, And now I've found myself wanting to represent District 11 in the state Senate because I think we need fundamental changes, especially when it comes to our political system and our economic system working for everyday people.
0: Mm -hmm. California now is experiencing its worst wildfire season in recent memory, and San Francisco's air quality has been really bad. We had that horrific orange apocalyptic day um, last week. I think people are still (laughs) recovering from. Um, I know you've proposed an indigenous wildfire task force, and can you describe how that would work and how you think the state should go about tackling this problem?
1: Absolutely. So a few weeks ago, I announced a proposal for an indigenous wildfire task force. And at that time, there were over 600 active wildfires. As we know, the whole West Coast really is, uh, is buckling under the severity and scale of these wildfires. that just seems to grow every single year. And climate change is obviously a huge factor in this. It's getting hotter. We've experienced drought um you know we've lost so much of our ecosystem but also we've also been able to uh neglect our responsibilities to make sure that um a lot of our of our lands are are free from fuel so really you know the kind of brush trees grass that build up over time and indigenous tribes in california there are many, but a lot of them have been working, you know, since time immemorial to ensure that the, the lands that they are on are um, not just, you know, free of fire, which is not really realistic here in California, but that the fires that do come are not uh, as large as the ones that we're seeing now. And so, unfortunately, fire suppression tactics As well as violent repression of indigenous cultural practices taken by the state have ignored or thoroughly outlawed uh, indigenous land management practices. And so despite all this, the tribes have continued to to manage their tribal lands in the way that they know how um, they've had, you know, 10,000 years to hone these practices. And yes, they include prescribed burns. And that's that's really what we're talking about here. So I'm proposing a task force composed of researchers, representatives from all California tribes, uh, Cal Fire, federal officials, and state and local officials uh, with the ultimate goal to align all of those agencies to prevent the severity and scale of wildfires across California. Uh, Potential outcomes of this include, you know, making sure that tribes have the authority and resources to continue their land management and cultural practices, perhaps even beyond the, the typical boundaries of of tribal lands, but also a jobs program, and not just for tribal members, but for non-tribal members too, and any any necessary funding or policy changes to make that possible.
0: Mm -hmm. I hear from so many readers who think that it's an either-or situation, that either it's climate change or it's a forest management problem, but it sounds like you agree that both are big problems, and we need to be addressing both at the same time.
1: Absolutely. It is, it is absolutely both. And uh, it's really unfortunate that we don't have a president who believes in climate change. Yeah. I, I understand that our governor has been trying with very large font and very <laughs> graphics to yes. explain it to him, but he is stubbornly resistant to that idea. And that is, that is the kind of leadership that is going to, uh, you know, continue to uh, provide the conditions for these, these wildfires to grow and scale.
0: Yes. um, President Trump told um, Governor Newsom and and others in the state government that not to worry, it's just going to get cooler. That's just going to happen magically. So
1: (laughs) (laughs) that was his whole
0: plan. And Science doesn't know that, apparently. Right. So you've also expressed some concern about the lack of women representation in the state Senate. What do you think a lack of gender equity among leaders in California means for the people and how does that affect the way government works?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's only 14 women state senators, and uh, if elected, I would be the first uh, woman of color to represent this particular district in the state senate. Um, and at the same time, this is also happening in light of you know a huge wave of uh, people from traditionally marginalized backgrounds running for all levels of office. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that you know it's it's not just the and this is what I I talk about in my class, but it's not it's not just you know the identity that uh, secures a, a certain worldview. It's really the experiences. I mean, I grew up in uh, predominantly low income neighborhood, raised for most of my life by a single mom. Uh, she's still a secretary, but my experience, you know, growing up under her has informed so much of my, my worldview and my understanding. For example, when we entered this pandemic, I, I was just trying to think about how, if I were a child in this time and my mom who works in a, you know, nine to five job as a secretary, how would she care for me at home or how would she help me in schooling? You know, we were so lucky to be able to afford a computer, but there are so many kids that I grew up around that could not, and we actually had to, you know, let them borrow a computer or a printer. Um, we were, we were that, that household for a lot of families in our community. And so I just think it must be so difficult to be a parent in this time, especially a single parent, working class parent, perhaps furloughed or unemployed. You know, before this pandemic, we had 1,400 homeless SFUSD students. And we can say that so casually somehow. And I think, I mean, we, we see a lot of inequalities in this district, but that one in particular really gets to me. Um, so when I think about representation, it's, it's not just representation for representation's sake, but it's it's understanding that there are certain identities that um, can ensure, you know, we have really holistic policies to some of our, of our most difficult problems. Mm-hmm. And one of that for me includes, you know, fighting for universal public Wi-Fi for kids, making sure that students have the technology that they need to participate in this very difficult distance learning uh, scenario, but, Also, you know, making sure that parents at at, uh, hopefully a point soon in the future can can entrust their their kids to um, child care providers that are at low or no cost. I know that that would have been a huge help to my mother when I was growing up. Um, You know, also, I'm proud to be a queer woman of color, and I think that There are also additional perspectives at these intersections of identities that we have been really lacking in the state Senate. And as a queer woman of color, I understand that, you know, my identity is inextricably tied to not just being a woman, but also, um, you know, growing up in in various cultures uh, that did not appreciate queer identity or, or respect it. And that will inform a lot of my uh, decisions as a state senator.
0: We'll be right back. I'm back with Jackie Fielder, who's challenging State Senator Scott Wiener in November. Your opponent, State Senator Scott Wiener, has recently been the target of believers of QAnon and has been speaking out about the online harassment and even death threats that he's experienced from followers of that um, bizarre conspiracy theory. I was just wondering what you think of what he's going through with that and why our country has become so polarized with people believing blatantly untrue things and, you know, the whole concept of truth being so strange right now.
1: Yeah, it's it's really horrible what he's been subject to. And I every I think a lot of people know I have many disagreements with the state senator, but you know, homophobia, violent harassment, uh, death threats have no place in our political discourse. And it's hard to divorce this particular, you know, uh, culture from the president and all that he has enabled uh, with respect to, you know, far right wing Mm -hmm. uh, messaging, but also dog whistling. Um, but absolutely, it's it's horrendous what the state senator is going through.
0: Um, he's been um, Scott Weiner, not Donald Trump, has been um, very well known lately for pushing um, for changing the way California's housing um, policies work, including pushing for housing to be built near transit stations. Um, you know, bigger, taller housing. What do you think of those proposals, and what would you propose to address the state's housing crisis?
1: Yeah, my take is that uh, we need to build affordable housing not just housing for anyone Uh, i i think that if we sincerely want to alleviate the suffering of of millions of californians and that's only expounded by the pandemic uh, we need to build for need and not for profit and so a part of my housing platform is a california housing emergency fund and this fund would provide for taking units off of the speculative market entirely. Because what we saw in the Great Recession is this huge gobbling up of homes and properties by Wall Street banks and private equity groups. And we really can't afford that if we want to preserve affordable housing here, especially in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. And so I'm all for uh, building you know, along public transit lines, making sure that our cities are, are walkable, uh, and transit friendly, but those should be available to, to all Californians and, and not just the wealthy. And I want to uh, you know, also point out that when it comes to climate change, we absolutely need to consider how our, how our cities, how our regions are being designed to adapt to climate change, but also to prevent it. Uh, we know that people are being forced out to places like the Central Valley, or um, you know, a couple hours out from San Francisco. And often, those people are lower-income people whose carbon footprint is smaller, but they're being pushed out to these dense, the, these less dense areas um, from their places where they originally could walk to work or school. And you know what this means is that they may, they may need to drive more and adopt generally more carbon intensive lifestyles. But we also need to consider the fact that uh, there's this one study by the Stockholm Environment Institute that found that 80% of greenhouse gas emissions caused by in-city consumption and activities were physically emitted beyond city limits. And so we also need to understand that Even if we are in a city, uh, our consumption patterns largely contribute to our overall climate goals and emissions. Mm -hmm. Um, To that end, we need to make sure that our cities are affordable for everyone. Mm -hmm.
0: And of course, affordable housing is one big answer to the homelessness crisis. But do you have any other plans for California's um, huge homeless crisis, which has um, spiked even more during the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: Yeah, there's two, I think there's two prongs to this. There's making sure that people don't become homeless. So, you know, there are, there's a spectrum of of homelessness. There's people sleeping on, on couches or going to bunk with families. You know, I think at this, at this rate, I saw the, the rate of young people staying with their families has increased so much. To a level we haven't seen since the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going back to live with, with parents elsewhere. But also we need to make sure that the people who are being unemployed and furloughed uh, can stay in their homes. And part of that for me has been to push for measures that that make sure that people don't have to pay if they're in in, you know, affected by the the coronavirus pandemic but also making sure that small homeowners, landlords, that they also don't get swallowed up by Wall Street or private equity groups, because that's the last thing that we want. So Mm -hmm. the government, I think, needs to step up and make sure that people can stay in their homes to prevent homelessness from exacerbating. Um, Secondly, there's making sure that the people that are on the streets and that have been before this are permanently housed. We keep, you know, I think that we have a natural reaction to want to just push people elsewhere, but that hasn't worked. And so I think that we need to seriously consider our options, especially uh, being able to potentially even convert a lot of these vacant spaces Um to make sure that homeless people can can have a place to stay. I also think that we need to ramp up our investments in mental health. I think that's that's true for everyone, but yeah, especially uh, now. Especially now. But you know, there there's plenty that we need to continue to do that has really been because we've had several decades of disinvestment from our healthcare institutions. And so when the federal government fails at that. My view is that the state needs to step up. Um, So coupling both permanent housing and mental health for people uh, has to be more of a priority.
0: What do you think of State Senator Scott Wiener's push for more conservatorship and to make it easier to compel treatment for people who are very mentally ill or addicted to drugs?
1: There's not really a place to conserve people into. The issue is that we already have massive wait lists for what little treatment is available. And so we need to expand how much treatment is available, you know, mental health SF and potentially expanding that to the state level. Um, But we are so far from where we were decades ago with respect to our mental health institutions. And we need to severely increase that investment.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you've survived my serious questions. And now it's time for the lightning round. All right. <laughs> Where is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? Uh,
1: definitely El Faro on 24th. What's your order? Well, I will get a burrito with carne asada and extra green salsa.
0: Well, sounds good. What's your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco?
1: Well, since I'm a millennial, I have to say Princess Diaries. <laughs> That's a good one. But I will say I have to give some credit to my friends Joe Talbot and Jimmy Fails for creating The Last Black Man of San Francisco. Yes,
0: both good choices. Where's your favorite place in San Francisco, thinking back to when bars were open, to get a stiff drink?
1: I really like co-owned and cash-only places, so, and also it helps that they are very much a part of the queer community, so El Rio. Nice. What was your first concert? First concert was the Foo Fighters when I was probably 14, uh, down in LA when I was still a kid. And my mom actually took me. She had a great time.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, Foo Fighters. What was the last book you read?
1: Housing the City by the Bay. It's an amazing, um, basically, uh, telling of the history of tenants' rights organizing. San Francisco Housing Authority also complimented with a lot of background from the federal level and you know talking about public housing and uh, and a lot of good stuff. Who is your favorite
0: San Francisco politician?
1: I really like Art Agnos actually hmm. because he is so I've been calling him every once in a while and he is so antsy to get out. <laughs> <I> really, <laughs> I really feel for him, but every time it's like, all right, how about this? How about that? <laughs> but
0: he's really, really charming. He's very energetic. Yes. Um, when the pandemic is over, what is the thing you look forward to doing that you're not allowed to do now?
1: I really want to visit my elders um, all over, you know, the state, but also potentially even back to Standing Rock. Um, it's unfortunate that, you know, we can't see them, but we have to, we have to hold on for now.
0: hmm and last question: What is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day?
1: Definitely cooking breakfast, which is usually eggs, zucchini, maybe toast, coffee, and listening to a podcast while doing that.
0: Oh, I'm sure it's fifth admission, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. It was fun to talk to you. Thank you so much, Heather. Take care. Take care. Thank you to Jackie Fielder for joining me today, to Taya Francesca Price for producing this episode, and to you for listening.